2: shantae joseph i'm a writer and broadcaster and i spend way too much time online but now those years of scrolling are finally paying off because i'm hosting the guardians new pop culture podcast in each episode i'm gonna get under the skin of the week's biggest stories if you love pop culture and want to get into how it's shaping and impacting our lives then you should join me every thursday listen wherever you get your
3: podcasts out now bye
1: Tomorrow is supposed to be the last day of COP27, the UN's climate change conference in Egypt. We're all hoping for meaningful commitments to tackle the climate crisis. But whatever is agreed, disasters will, unfortunately, continue to get worse in the coming years. Carbon pollution from fossil fuels is on the rise, and it could rise by almost about a percent this year. And this rise would mean that emissions will hit an all-time high. It's pretty depressing stuff, but what's it like to be a climate scientist who is living and breathing it day in, day out? Last year at COP26 in Glasgow, we spoke to two climate scientists about their thoughts on progress.
3: 1.5 degrees is not a magic target. If we end up at 1.49, everything will be fine. Or 1.51, 1, then we're just going to hell in the handbasket.
2: There's plenty of fine words being spoken cleaning at these cops, but it's just a lack of urgency, it's a lack of um, getting on with it.
1: So we've gone back to them to ask how on earth they stay motivated and hopeful. From The Guardian I'm Ian Sample and this is Science Weekly. Peter Stott, you're a professor at Exeter University and science fellow at the Met Office, attributing climate change to anthropogenic and natural causes. Since we last spoke at COP26, there's not been enough action to reduce carbon emissions. And every time we return to COPs, there's this question of whether the world, and particularly governments, are going to listen this time. I wonder how you feel at seeing such slow progress, having the same conversations over and over.
2: That is pretty um, depressing and does induce an element of despair, really. I mean, I did feel moderately hopeful at the previous COP meeting in Glasgow because of the pledges that were made. But that did include a commitment to accelerate progress in dealing with climate change and to, to increase ambitions in terms of Mitigation in terms of reducing emissions. But what I'm now seeing is a diversion of attention of world leaders onto other matters, such as the war in Ukraine, and we can't afford even another year of delay.
1: Like you said, we can't delay, but some argue there's not enough money or resources to get to the climate
2: crisis now. This is the really dangerous argument because we know that another few years have not reducing emissions globally not starting to reduce those emissions and indeed starting to reduce those emissions very rapidly um, means there will be more and more of these damaging extreme weather events, more and more threats and and deaths. We're going to start to see realisation of these tipping points in the climate system, such as irreversible melting of the Greenland ice sheet, for example, with its catastrophic increases of sea level rise around the world.
1: In the UK, of course, we've seen a lot of climate protests from groups like Extinction Rebellion, Just Stop Oil. We've even seen scientists and doctors resorting to direct action and civil disobedience. I'm wondering whether this sort of exasperation, this frustration, means that researchers themselves are stopping with the pleasantries. I mean, how do you gauge the mood out there?
2: There is quite a bit of despair and exasperation around because we've been conveying this message of the seriousness of climate change At least for the last twenty six years that I've been involved in climate research. You know, I think I think many scientists are very cheered actually by, for example, the Greta Tunbo school strike movement, the fact that people are making their frustrations clear. And I think it's very important that we that we basically win the hearts and minds of people who are not yet fully committed to to the changes that need to happen.
1: This year, of course, there's also this question around whether we should say goodbye to sort of 1.5C. And it it looks like we're going to go through that limit around 2030, which is when we're going to be at the point of encountering some of these dangerous tipping points by the looks of things. Do you think we need a new line in the sand, uh, another number?
2: What we do need is to remember what the Paris Agreement of 2015 says, which is to keep warming to well below 2 degrees so that that is what the governments have all signed up to. They've not signed up to keep warming to just below two degrees. They've signed up to keep it to well below two degrees. And, you know, as the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change have said, every bit of warming matters. So I'm not sure that I think it's a good tactic to say, well, maybe 1.5 is out of reach, let's aim for 1.6. I think the point now is to work really hard to keep it as low as possible. And... You know, even with 1.5, there's a debate to be had about whether it might still be possible, as long as we don't overshoot it too much, that we might be able to then, through things like carbon capture and storage, to be able to bring it back down again. But that argument only works if we've managed to just edge just marginally above one and a half degrees. The fight is about every bit of warming matters. And I think, you know, we really need to hold the policymakers to account
1: one year on from when we last spoke, a lot has changed. I mean, how are you feeling about the future now?
2: I am feeling a bit less hopeful than I did a year ago. Many people around the world, of course, are struggling to be quite so hopeful given, given what's happening around the world. But I think when it comes to the climate crisis, all of these issues are wrapped up together, that if we want to build a, a better world where people can have a better standard of living, which is equitable, where we have security of our energy supplies, actually the way to do that is in dealing with the climate crisis, is, for example, in moving to more renewable energy, is moving to a more equitable way of thinking about the global south and about how we feed the the world population. All of these things are all wrapped up. Making a sustainable world, dealing with the climate crisis is actually the number one priority.
1: I'm wondering what you do, Peter, when you feel frustrated or depressed about the lack of progress on the climate crisis. Have you got any strategies that you pull in to help keep
2: hope alive? I think part of it is about localism and is about thinking locally. For example, in Exeter, far more people are cycling and walking around um, and there's a lot to go to make that local transport more sustainable, but it's starting to happen and seeing people change things for the better, so that they're feeling healthier and and happier in their lives. That is the strategy that I'm sort of trying to have, because the issue is it will take many, many, many millions of these small steps.
1: Okay, Peter is feeling a little disheartened, even if there are some glimmers of hope. So, for a big dollop of hope, I called Catherine Hayhoe, a climate scientist who is currently at COP. I asked her what it's like to go to conferences like these and see so little progress when the science is so clear on what needs to be done.
3: Well, it's definitely frustrating. I mean, Scientists in the 1850s, no, that's not a typo, the 1850s knew that digging up coal back then produced heat-trapping gases that were wrapping an extra blanket around the planet. And by the 1890s, scientists had calculated how much warmer the planet would be depending on how much fossil fuels we burned. So we scientists sort of feel like we've been checking if the microphone is really on for quite a long time. But today, we know that people around the world are talking about it. And what we see here in Egypt is what we also saw last year in Glasgow. These negotiations are no longer only the country representatives talking about what their country can do or wants other countries to do. Every aspect of civil society is represented here because we know that climate change is affecting every single one of our lives, no matter where we live, no matter what we do, no matter how we vote politically.
1: Some scientists seem to be at the end of their tethers now. I think they're giving up speaking to policymakers, politicians, and instead moving towards sort of direct action activism. What do you make of that?
3: I do not blame them. We have been sounding this alarm for a very long time. And there's a broad spectrum of engagement from writing your peer-reviewed publications to chaining yourself to fences to protest what's happening. You can find scientists at every point along that spectrum. The social science research shows scientists are reputable, respected, effective voices to call for climate action, but there's one group of people who are more effective than scientists you people we know are the number one most effective messenger to say here's why climate change matters here's what we could do together to do our part to help fix it
1: how do you keep hope alive Catherine? and what do you do when you get frustrated or depressed about the lack of progress on this
3: Well, first of all, I think it's important to acknowledge that I do. I've started asking people at the very beginning of my talks, when I say climate change, how do you feel? And I ask them to give me one word. People say, I feel worried, scared, overwhelmed, frustrated, angry, guilty, panicked, paralyzed. And I say, you know what? You are not alone. I live in the United States where 70% of people are worried about climate change in the US. And then I say, we well, have every reason. Because if you look at the science, that is a logical, reasonable response. And believe me, I feel that way too. But what we have to do is we have to recognize that in order to act, we have to understand that our actions make a difference. And to me, that's what hope is. Hope is not the guarantee of a better future. Hope is that small chance that if we do everything we can, and we fight as hard as we can, and we put our differences aside, there is a better future possible. That's what hope is for me.
1: Catherine, I know you're an evangelical Christian too, and I'm wondering if your faith helps you keep hope alive.
3: It absolutely does. In fact, one of the most meaningful verses in the Bible to me on hope begins with suffering. And it says that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance leads to character, and character leads to hope. Hope is not some sort of optimistic, oh, if I just believe everything will be all right, then it will. Hope is born from suffering. In fact, you only need hope when we are at our darkest point. And with climate change, we are rapidly approaching that point with the unimaginable suffering that's happening around the world. And if we truly claim that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves then we will be at the front of the line demanding climate action.
1: I have days when I read the latest IPCC report or news stories on the latest natural disaster in the climate crisis when it all just feels too bleak that we're never going to be able to tackle this huge challenge that faces us. What should I do? What should we all do when we're feeling that way?
3: We all have those days. And the more we know, I think the more often we have those days. But that giant boulder of climate action, it is not sitting at the bottom of an impossibly steep cliff with only a few hands on it. No, that boulder is already at the top of the hill. It is already rolling down the hill in the right direction. As of last year, 56% of all jobs in the energy sector around the world were clean energy jobs. I live in the state of Texas, the home of the oil and gas industry, where this year so far over a third of our electricity has come from wind and solar energy, and the state has been saving $20 million a day from not buying fossil fuels to power people's homes. When we look at the fact that solar energy is the cheapest form of electricity humans have ever had access to, and it is already revolutionizing the lives of women and children in sub-Saharan Africa we realize that giant boulder truly is rolling down the hill in the right direction. And it has millions of hands on it. It just needs more. So that's why I wrote my book that just came out in the UK this past year called Saving Us. It's all about how we, through connecting with others and having conversations with others, can find that hope. Spending time with the people you love, in the places you love, doing the things you love, is climate action. Because what we're doing is we're reminding ourselves of why we fight. For everyone we love, everything we love, every place we love.
1: Catherine, thank you so much for speaking to me today. I think I'm feeling a little bit better after that. And enjoy the rest of COP.
3: Thank you so much.
1: My thanks again to Catherine Hayhoe and Peter Stott. You can find a link to Catherine's book, Saving Us, on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. There's also a link to Peter's book, Hot Air, The Inside Story of the Battle Against Climate Change Denial, which has been shortlisted for the Royal Society Science Book Prize this year. The winners are being announced in just over a week's time, so good luck to Peter. If you're needing a bit of distraction as well as hope right now, then you should listen to The Guardian's new podcast, Pop Culture, with Shanti Joseph. Today's episode is all about Matt Hancock in the jungle, He's been on our TV screens night after night, eating sheep vagina, fish eyes and getting covered in gunk. This week, Shante speaks to someone who's known Matt Hancock for 15 years to ask, what was he thinking going on the show? If it's a question you've been wondering about too, search for Pop Culture with Shante Joseph wherever you get your podcasts. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Madeline Finlay and Ned Carter-Miles. The sound design was by Tony Onochuku. And the executive producer was Georgia Moody. We'll be back on Tuesday. See you then. This is The Guardian.